This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works or others in the book world about their roles, what those roles entail, and the books they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Thoughts from a Page. Thanks to Maggie Garza of HTX Real Estate Group for sponsoring my podcast. Last week, I posted my first Patreon-only episode, which was my June reading wrap-up, and this week, my first monthly Patreon Bookstagrammer interview will air. For July, I speak with Barrett of Barrett Talks Books and Deb of DG Reads. You can check out the benefits I am offering through the link in the show notes. I hope you will consider becoming a page-turner. Today, I am speaking with Lynn Liao Butler about The Tiger Mom's Tale. Lynn was born in Taiwan and moved to the States when she was seven. In her past and present lives, she has been a concert pianist, a professional ballet and modern dancer, a gym and fitness studio owner, a certified personal trainer and fitness instructor, a purse designer, and most recently author of multicultural fiction. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Welcome, Lynn. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me here. I'm so excited to have you. We planned this so long ago, so it's wonderful <laughs> to actually be talking to you now. I know. That was uh, quite a wait, right? <laughs> it really was. I loved The Tiger Mom's Tale and thought it was just such a wonderful read. So why don't we start out with you talking a little bit about it for those that won't have read it yet? Okay. Um, so The Tiger Mom's Tale is about a Taiwanese-American woman. She's half Taiwanese and half Caucasian who something had happened to her in the past in Taiwan. So she's estranged from her Taiwanese father and hasn't seen him since she was 14. So when he dies unexpectedly, she's suddenly cast back into the Taiwanese family because of a will that he left that if she doesn't go back and reconnect with her heritage, her family is in Taiwan is going to lose their home. So it's just about an American woman who has to reconcile the two halves of herself, how she feels like American, but also is Taiwanese and that she can't find exactly who she is until she confronts her past and her heritage. And she has all of these family members who are also struggling with their own issues. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was interesting. And I like that, that it wasn't just her, but there were all these other things happening at the same time. And she was trying to just get it all reconciled. Exactly. Every, every family has their own drama, whether you're here in America or in Taiwan. Absolutely. Well, how did you come up with the subject matter for this one? It was really based on myself. I was born in Taiwan. So unlike Lexa, I am 100% Taiwanese. Um, but we moved here when I was seven. So I've always grown up feeling like I was American because I was really brought up here. But on the outside, I look Asian. So everybody assumes I'm Asian and you know speak perfect Mandarin and whatever. Um, but on the inside, I felt more like an American child. And whenever I went back to visit in Taiwan, they would call me the American cousin. And, you know, we stood out like our accents, our Mandarin and Taiwanese accents were a little funny. And our mannerism, the way we dress is different. And then when I was here, everybody assumed that I was Asian and not American. 
So I've always wondered what it'd be like to look Asian on the outside, but grow up with like a Caucasian family that looked nothing like you. And so that's where Alexa was born. I like that. And how was it trying to write it? Did you learn anything about yourself as you were writing the book? Um, yeah, this book was kind of, I started this book, I wrote it in 2015. And I just, I've never been a writer. I've never taken a course or had any writing experience, but I love to read. Like I read all the time, sometimes five, seven books a week. And just one day I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to write a book. <laughs> I sat down and I wrote a book in six months. Nobody had ever read it. And I started querying it, not knowing that you're not supposed to do that. So, <laughs> And I was like, hmm, how come nobody's answering me? So then I started Googling it and realized that that's not how you write a book. You need critique partners. You need you know, practice. You need people to tell you what works, what doesn't. So this has been kind of like a work in progress. I put it aside and wrote a second book and that didn't pick up either. So then I went back to this book and decided to replot it. I kept all the same characters and um, just came up with a whole new plot because the first book I made her half Japanese for some reason. I don't know. I guess I just wanted to try a different identity. And then I realized I should write what I know. So I made her half Taiwanese and just like me, she knows some of the Taiwanese culture, but not a lot. And she feels awkward in both places. Um, so a lot of it was drawn from like my experiences. But her story is nothing like mine. I've, I've made her, you know, her whole dy family dynamic up and everything. But yeah, it was really interesting. I got to go back to Taiwan and do research and see all the places that I mentioned and stuff that I forgot about the Taiwanese culture. You actually just preempted my next question. Oh. <laughs> I was going to ask you about your research. So that's perfect. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, so when I finished writing it, I realized that um, I had set parts of it in Taiwan. And it had been so long since I've been back there. So we planned a family trip and I took my husband and my son and my mom came with us to introduce them to my Taiwanese family and also to visit all the places that I had put in my book, like the night markets, which is like huge over there, the food, you know, to experience firsthand again, like all the buildings and culture and like everybody's customs and everything. So it was great. I took a lot of pictures so that when I came back, I could describe the setting you know, based on the pictures in case I forgot what it was like. And it was just such a great, it was a great trip. It was part family, part work research. And it really, I think, enhanced the Taiwanese sections more than if I had just gone from my memory. Well, I was so curious about that because I felt as I was reading that you really brought Taiwan to life, the culture, the food. It was also vivid. And then when I looked on Goodreads, that was like the number one thing almost every reviewer said was that she just brought everything to life so vividly, so descriptively. I felt I was there. I want to eat the food. Clearly, that's resonating with readers. Did you really set out to be so descriptive or does that come naturally to you? Nope. That I didn't even know my book was about food until I started seeing those reviews. I was just kind of writing what, like, like I said, like what I was experiencing and seeing um, so that the description, I always thought I was really bad at descriptions and not gave enough. So that was a big surprise. And then the fact that so many people picked up on the food, I guess for me as a Taiwanese person, food is such a big part of our culture. I mean, Taiwanese people, all they do is eat. Like when we were there, my husband was like, is this all we're going to do is eat? <laughs> like, are we going sightseeing? I'm like, no, we're just going to eat our way through Taiwan. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's like, he's like, how do you guys stay so thin and eat so much? Like he couldn't, he couldn't understand. And I was like, that's the Taiwanese culture, the street food, the Taiwanese like snacks, the night markets, the day markets, there's just food everywhere. And so I guess that came through in my writing without me meaning to do that. So I guess it's a good thing. <laughs> oh, it's a very good thing. Because <laughs> that's my favorite type of book to read is where I feel like I'm truly transported somewhere. And you definitely did that. Oh, good. <laughs> 
What do you hope your readers take away from this book? So um, more important than ever, I think these days, like the Asian perspective needs to be um, represented in publishing and books, media, movies, everything. Because um, if you think about it, there's really not that many books about Taiwanese Americans or even the Taiwanese culture. There are some, but not enough. Like my editor at the publishing house, when she offered, she told me that in the 25, 30 years that she's been working in publishing, this was the first book she's ever gotten on submission that was from a Taiwanese American perspective. And I thought that was kind of shocking. I was like, wow. And so it's hard for the few writers out there who are of Taiwanese American descent to represent all of Taiwanese Americans because we have such different perspectives. It's just like saying like you can't have one person representing all of Caucasian or Italians, whatever. So I think we need more books like this out there. And uh, surprisingly, my biggest critics have been Asian American women because they don't see themselves in my books, which is okay because you know it's not for everyone or it's not everybody's perspective. But because there's so few books out there, I feel like we almost are kind of um, responsible for representing everybody, which is a you know, really hard thing to do. So I really want people to see that we need more books like this and we need more perspectives so that we can see like what Taiwanese culture is. Um, if there's more books out there, then maybe people would get more knowledge and realize that you know we're also Americans, even though we're from someplace they never heard of or don't know much about. Well, that's so interesting that you say that because that was one of my first thoughts as I was reading your book. I'm sure I haven't read a book about Taiwan before. And so I was really glad that that's what you were writing about. And I think it's particularly relevant with the last 16, 18 months we've had and the pushback that the Asian community is getting, the unfair pushback, that I think it's really nice to represent different cultures and understand a little bit more about them, humanize them, you right. know, help people understand a little better. And to your second point, yes, I mean, we're all Americans, regardless of what we look like. Exactly. And that's um, a big part of what I hope people get from this book, because um, it was pushed back because of the pandemic and because of the anti-Asian sentiments that was in America. So I hope it's coming out at a time where people are a little more open to learning about a culture they don't know about and, you know, accepting that we are people too, and we are Americans. And we have the same, you know, loves and family drama and love of food that almost every culture has. Absolutely. That there are many things that we share and obviously people are different and every culture and group of people have some things that are different, some things that are the same, but at the core of it all, we're way more similar than we are different. Exactly. I agree with that. Well, what was the highlight of writing the book? <laughs> uh, I don't know uh, if there's any real highlights right now. I mean, it's been torturous. So what was your least favorite part? Maybe we can answer that question instead. My least favorite part of publishing is the waiting. Yeah. Like everything takes so long in publishing, not just from querying and, you know, writing and, you know, getting agent responses. But then like once you do get an agent, you go on submission. And I think that's probably the my least favorite part of publishing is being on submission. Because it's like torture. It's like you have no control whatsoever. You feel like you're so close. You finally signed the agent. But now like the editors have to like it and not just the editor you submit to, but their whole team and their sales team. And, you know, everybody has to be on board. So it's just, it's just, it's a very hard, it's a very hard life. And I, I didn't realize this when I decided I wanted to write a book. Um, so I've really learned patience. I have no patience, but the past two years has really taught me like, you just got to go with the flow. And, but yeah, the high, I guess the highlight I should say is when I got the book deal because Berkeley was my dream publisher. 
And Cindy Huang is my dream editor. Before I even thought to write a book, I used to wander through Barnes and Nobles and pick up books from Berkeley and like see Cindy's name in the acknowledgments and be like, oh my God, this is what I would love this to be, you know, if I ever wrote a book. So that was a dream come true. How cool that that worked out that way. Yeah, exactly. It, it could have very well not have. How far out did your book get pushed back? Um, well, so the I got the deal in July of 2019. Oh, wow. And originally they were saying maybe fall of 2021. No, I'm sorry, fall of 2020. But then because of the elections, there's a lot of other stuff going on. They pushed it back to, they said, early 2021. And then they said spring 2021. And then when the pandemic hit, it got pushed back again. And then with everything going on in the country, it got pushed to August of 2021. And then about a few weeks later, they were, they're like, oh, good news. We moved it to July 6th, kind of stuck there. So it's been quite a lot. You're like, please stop moving my book. I mean, it's okay. Like now I'm kind of glad it did just because even though we're still in the pandemic, we're coming out of it slightly. So it's it feels a little bit better than if it did come out earlier in 2021 or 2020. So it I think it just works out in the end, like the way it's supposed to. I do agree with that. And I always say that to my children. And even to myself, when things are happening that I'm not thrilled with, like these things work out in the end. And not having it come out during the fall 2020 election, I think is very wise. That was not really something I realized publishers paid attention to until this election. But I can yes. see why it, it makes perfect sense. And I think you just don't want any part of that. Yes. But I mean, you know, it's been a long two years because it'll be about two years from the time I got the offer before this book is published. So, you know, people always ask me like, when's your book coming out? Is it already out? I'm like, no. <laughs> They're like, are you sure you have a book coming out? <laughs> right. Exactly. Like, are you sure you wrote a book? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now I want to take a quick break and tell you about a new podcast that I just discovered. I recently found the Looking Into Wine podcast hosted by Mattia Scarpaza. Having finished the prestigious WSET wine diploma, he wanted to continue learning and go more in-depth on some of the topics that fascinated him, taking the audience with him in this learning process. The Looking Into Wine podcast covers wine regions, styles, wine science, and producers. Interview-style episodes are detailed, comprehensive, and inspirational. The podcast guests are renowned authorities on the subject. He speaks with authors, advocates, winemakers, and more. I hope you will check it out. Well, I love the cover. I remember when you did the cover reveal and I just thought that cover is outstanding. Do you just love it? I do now, but I didn't know what to expect. Like all the books I read have like people on them and like, you know, not illustrated copies. So I had no idea what to expect. So when I got the the copies, um, they gave me like four choices, I think. I did not like any of them because I wa it wasn't what I was expecting. But then my agent talked me down and some author friends, they're like, this thing is fantastic. And I was like, you know what? You're right. I didn't, you know, because you know, when you get something stuck in your head for sure, and then you actually see the thing and it's completely different. It, it just takes a while. And then once they pointed out all the great things about it, like the eyes and like the, you know, the sesame ball things and the moped, I realized, I mean, it's stunning. Like it's like a piece of art and I was so lucky to have it. And now I just absolutely love it. I mean, it's on everything. I, I made fabric out of it and have made little coin purses and card holders out of it. I have a um, phone case made from it. So yeah, it's it's beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. And I think it is very representative of the book. And I think it's very different in a great way because my complaint sometimes with covers is so many of them really look derivative of a bunch of others. And so you right. see yours and you immediately know it's your book. 
And I just think it's stunning. And I love all the graphics they've done for you on Twitter. I, I just think it's wonderful. Yeah. And I love the way the eyes, like if you look at the book from far away, the eyes are like looking at you. So, <laughs> Well, and my one complaint about Penguin Random House generally and Berkeley falls under that is that they're not doing much in the way of print galleys. So I haven't seen the book yet. I've only seen yeah. the net galley read, but hopefully they're going to go back to galleys at some point. Yeah, that would be so nice. Yeah, I know. That was one thing I was very disappointed about. I was looking forward to getting the physical arcs and, you know, but now I just got my author copies last week. So it's very exciting. That is very exciting. And I think I remember seeing that on Instagram. And actually, yeah. then I reached out to your publicist and was like, can I get a copy, please? But they're out. They're, they're here. <laughs> I was seeing them on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, another thing that I have absolutely loved that you do are those hilarious reels oh. where like your marketing team wanted you to do something. And so you like started out with it and, and then you're like, okay, here's my first attempt. It's been so much fun to watch those. Well, that, that was like, they, when they asked me, they say, okay, we'd like you to make about 11 videos. I was like, what? <laughs> and they gave me a script and stuff. And they were like, you know, try to figure out reels. And so I had no idea what I was doing at that time. And then when I actually sat down to record what they wanted me to say, I could not for the life of me speak. Like I kept stumbling over my words. I forgot my name. I was like, hi, I'm Lynn. And then it was like dead silence. And I forgot the name of my book. I held things upside down. I dropped things. I mean, it was like just hilarious. So I just, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to make bloopers out of these. And the blooper reels actually took off and I think are doing better than my actual videos <laughs> that I recorded. Um, so it kind of turned into the, and then like they found out stuff from me about the interview, like that I was ambidextrous and I could write with both hands at the same time. And they're like, we need proof. So I made them a reel. And <laughs> so it kind of started as a joke. And now it's just like this fun thing that I do to keep my pre-launch anxiety under control. So whenever I start to feel my blood pressure rise, I go make a reel. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed them. And I just think it's so much fun because everybody sees kind of the regular videos. But to see the kind of behind the scenes or when it's not going so well, and you're so funny, that I just think that they're, they're highly entertaining. And I have loved that. Yeah. So I hope, you know, people can see that, you know, writers are people who, you know, can't speak, can't do <laughs> things right, forget their own names. And <laughs> well, that happens to me, actually, sometimes on the podcast, particularly when I'm trying to record my intro and outro, I will right. sit down <laughs> and all of a sudden I cannot get like two paragraphs without having to record it six times. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? I talk all day long on these podcast <laughs> interviews. And then I sit down to try to do one little recording by myself and I can't get it out. And I actually recorded like, you know, because I kept recording. I was like, oh my, I can't believe it. I just forgot that. And I talked to myself and somebody said to me, made a comment on one of my reels said, you play dumb so well. And I said, who's playing dumb? That really happened. <laughs> okay, that's even funnier. <laughs> I was like, I wasn't playing. That was like, you know, real. You're like, hey. <laughs> well, what about the title, The Tiger Mom's Tale? So originally the title was Fit Girls Don't Cry. And this was like back in 2015. And then um, I changed it because when I was submitting to agents, I realized it wasn't getting the right feel. Like it was, they weren't getting the right feel for the book. So then I came up with The Tiger Mom's Lies. And I love that title because it was all based on you know her lies. But when I got my um, contract with Berkeley, they at first did not want to use the Tiger Mom because they didn't want the stereotype to be associated with the book, even though it was, the character is a Tiger Mom. And also they didn't want the word lies in it because they felt like that was overused and also kind of gives away the plot or something. So we came up with like for eight months, we brainstormed I think like 85 titles, maybe more. And I mean, we, they came from like, you know, 
serious ones like the last Taiwanese summer to like really ridiculous ones like her father's sesame balls. That was my favorite one. I really wanted the book to be called that. Okay, that would have been hilarious. It might have sounded like a porn book, though. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly, because it opens with a um, Lexa eating a sesame ball and thinking about her father. So that probably wasn't the best title. But, you know, it was just ridiculous. Like, we went through so many titles. And after eight months, my editor said to me, you know, the tiger mom's starting to grow on me. <laughs> You're like, of course it is now. <laughs> of course, right. After we went through, like, so many. And then somebody in, I think it was sales or one of those teams said, how about tail instead of lie? And so then we settled on that. But yeah, we came up with some crazy ones. That's pretty funny. What I have found when I ask authors this question is either there was a title at the beginning and it stuck all the way through, or they go through what you're describing. Nobody right. says we tried three titles. It's either right. one title or 150 That's titles, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's hard to, to settle on it. But I, I like this one. I think it works really well for the book. Oh, good. So I know you have another book coming out next year. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? And I've already seen the beautiful cover for it also. Yeah. So the second book is coming out February 8th, 2022. So only seven months after this one. Oh, I didn't realize that it was coming out yeah. that quick. Okay. So that's why you have the cover. And Yes. Okay. I'm not sure why it's coming out so quick because usually they wait at least a year or 10 months, but maybe because it got pushed, the first one got pushed back. But the second book was already written by the time I got my offer for the first book, because that second book was the second book I queried agents with. And my agent, Rachel Brooks, had actually requested the full of that second book and loved the concept, but she didn't like the way I executed it. So when I sent her, when I submitted to her for Tiger Mom's Tale, she remembered me. And so when we were on submission with the Tiger Mom's Tale, she's like, okay, let's talk about that book. She's like, I really like the concept. I said, I have a way to fix it, to address her issues. So while we were in submission, we actually edited that book. So by the time um, Cindy made the offer, I was able to tell her when she asked, like, do you have something else in the works? And I told her all about it verbally. So they bought it on a two-book deal, So which was great because that meant both my books that I had written is going to be published because the third book is actually a rewrite of that first book I wrote in 2015. So it's called Red Thread of Fate, and hopefully that title stays. <laughs> It used to be called Her Little Secret, but again, they thought that was too generic. Or a thriller sounding, you know, that kind of sounds like a thriller to me. Right, exactly. And, you know, funny that you say that because my editor said there are elements of domestic suspense in it. She's like, it was surprisingly suspenseful for women's fiction. It's also about Taiwanese American women, but she's married to a mainland Chinese man. And they're about to go to China to adopt a little boy and the husband, Tony, is killed in an accident with his estranged cousin. And Tam, the main character, finds out that she's named as the guardian to the cousin's little five-year-old girl. So now suddenly she's going to be a single mom to a five-year-old and a little boy in China. And she has to decide if she's going to go back to China to adopt the child. And, you know, how she's, and there's like, you know, things that happened in both the husband's past and the cousin's past that come out in so it, it, I guess it kind of got a little suspenseful, but it's not sp supposed to be. That one sounds really good. And I'm excited that it's coming out so soon. Yeah. So it's really exciting that I already have the cover. We're already working on it, about to go out for blurbs. And so it's going to be really fast. Like once this one launches, then the second one, things are going to start happening for it. So That's what I was just thinking. You're not going to have much of a break between the two. Right. So I go from waiting for two years to now suddenly everything on fast forward. So. <laughs> and all those people that have been like, is your book coming out? You can be like, two of my books are coming out. Well, what about what you've read and loved recently? I read so much. And I'm one of those people that reads, I actually usually read about three books at the same time. 
So I'll have a physical book that I'm reading. And then on my iPhone, I have a book. And then on my iPad, I also have another book. So whatever I happen to be sitting near, I'll pick it up and start reading. So I just read, and this is funny that you said um, Her Little Secrets was suspenseful, because I just read a book called Little Secrets by Jennifer Hillier. I think that's how you say her name. It's a suspense novel. It was so good. Like she, even though it was suspense, she drew the character so well. And it's, you know, about a mom whose little boy gets kidnapped from her care. And it was just so emotional and really such a great read. Like it wasn't just a suspense thriller. Like for me, I felt like there was like that human side of how parents feel when their child disappears. And so that one was great. Um, I also read Accidentally Engaged by Farah Heron. She, it's a rom-com about an Indian woman who uh, lives in Canada and she pretends to be engaged to another man that her parents want to set her up with, but she didn't want to date. But they end up pretending to be engaged so that they can enter a baking contest. And then the other book I was reading at the same time was Simmer Down by Sarah Smith. Um, she's also a Berkeley author, and she is Filipino living in there in uh, Maui with a food truck. And it's a, it's a romance. So like you can see, I read all genres. I love all genres. And anytime somebody get, recommends me a book, I'll pick it up and read it. I'm impressed that you're able to get through five to seven books a week. I wish I could do that. Well, I don't do that right now. That that was before when I wasn't writing. Yeah, when you're on um, your when you're waiting for your book to come out too, I guess. <laughs> you're like I've got a lot of time. I need to be reading. Yes. And so when I I read books very fast. And then I usually reread the books that I love. So if I really love a book, I'll read it like, you know, five times. Really? Yeah. Oh wow. The only thing I ever do that with is Jane Austen. I have reread Pride and Prejudice and Persuasion probably 10 times each, but that is about the only thing I can think of that I have reread. Yeah, I tend to read like the books that are on my, on my bookshelf. I have an Ann Tyler book from a long time ago. I think it's called like Ladder of Years or something. And I've read that book maybe like 20 times. Like that's how much like, so if I really like a book, because every time I read it, I get something out of it that I missed the first time. I think that's exactly right. And there are times when I have read a suspense story that I want to go back and do that because I know I've missed clues as I went along. Right. So that makes sense. I just usually am looking ahead, trying to read whatever else I need to be reading before I have an interview or an article right, to write right. or something. <laughs> That'd be fun to go back and revisit some of those. And I always wonder too, like The Book Thief is one of my all-time favorite books, but I read it so long ago. And I wonder now if I pick it up, would I feel the same way about it? Exactly. Yeah. And that's the same with me for The Poison Whip Bible by Barbara Kingsolver. That was like my all-time favorite book, but I haven't read it in so long that I wonder what I would think of it now. Well, Lynn, I'm so happy that you came on the Thoughts from a Page podcast, and I was thrilled to talk with you about The Tiger Mom's Tale. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please consider joining my Patreon as a page turner. Follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Maggie Garza for sponsoring this episode, and I hope you'll tune in next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? 
Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.